Welcome to Hearing Voices. I'm Larry Massett. Our show is... Actually, she's sitting right here. My name is Soledad. Soledad means daughter of the sun. I was born in 1929, and I'm 83 this year, and I was born on the edge of Death Valley in a little village of Mescalero Apache Indians. They're all gone now. When I first met Soledad... She was living alone in a tiny room in a kind of depressing subsidized income apartment complex in Florida. She was not depressing, though. A few minutes after we met, she showed me the little knife she carries in her buckskin pouch. Uh, dot, I said. That's kind of a dangerous knife, isn't it? Meaning dangerous for a little old lady. She just laughed. Yeah, it's sharp, she said. But it would be better if it was rusty, so the cut would get infected when I stab somebody. Well, when they get in your face and call your names, you can only take it so long. And then I'll fight back. My mother was going to have me, and she was going to another village, and my father and my mother were walking, and she started having pains, and he helped her get behind a boulder in the shade, and he gave her turquoise stone to hold in her mouth to ease the pain, and he wetted her lips, and he held her hand, and he told her everything was going to be all right. And uh, I was born, and then there was a jeep came along, and it was full of guys that were drinking, and they had guns, and they chased my mother and father down, and they shot my father in the back, and they destroyed my mother. <laughs> and my mother put me under mesquite bush before they killed her. <laughs> God. And my grandfather had a, had a bad feeling something was wrong. And he sent out runners to try to find us, and they found me, and they think I've been in the desert three days and almost was croaked off, but they took me back with them, and I don't know how they fed me, but I come out of it, and my grandfather and the old ones took care of me. My grandfather didn't talk very much, and he said, you learn amazing things when you're quiet. And he taught me how to be still, because you don't see anything if you keep moving around. You have to be silent, and you have to be looking, but not saying. I've been in places where it's so silent, you can hear the clouds bumping into each other. He taught me that if you whistle, a rabbit will stop to look around, and that's when you take a rock and knock him in the head. Then you got rabbit for dinner. <laughs> and the eagle, if you whistle, if you learn, if you listen to him scream and you learn how to do that, you can call him down. You can call him down and get enough that you can see the golden feathers. My grandfather took me up to the top of Las Palmas. Los Palmas is a place in the rocks where we were that was like the palms of two hands. And my grandfather lay, told me to lay down in that one, and he lay down in the other one. My grandfather showed me how to leave my body and fly around in the spirit world. But that's a sacred thing, and you only do it with somebody you trust completely.
My grandfather said I had to go to mission school, and I didn't want to go, but the the old one said, yes, you got to go. I never saw white people before. I never saw nuns, and I thought they were dead because they was white like the bones get on the desert. I thought they were dead, and they wore black clothes, and then I found out they are dead inside. They were French nuns sent there by the government. They didn't want to be there, and they were very mean to us. And they broke our fingers for speaking our language, and they slammed their heads together till some of them couldn't hear out of one ear and stuff. They were vicious. They didn't like us. We didn't like them either. My little finger got broken three times for speaking my language because you weren't allowed to speak your own language. And it worked because I don't remember. I only remember a couple of three words. Well, yata, hey, that means how are you? And hata yo means get the hell out of the way. <laughs> It was hard, but we had to do it. The government kept saying they're going to bring us food, and they didn't bring it. We were starving to death, and my grandfather walked away into the up into the boulders to die, and. Uh, that's just the way it was. That's what he did. And uh, people were dying all around us. There was only me and four little boys left. And a rancher came. The boys were older than me. And the rancher came and took us to a ranch so we could break horses for a bowl of beans a day rather than starve to death. It was the first house I ever saw, and it was a hacienda, because I'd never seen a house before. We were not allowed in the house. I didn't want to go in the house. I'd never been in a house before. And me and the four boys slept on the floor in the bunkhouse, and they were like my four directions. They put their feet by my side and one at my head and one of my feet. They were my protectors. <laughs> And the cowboys were very good to us. They were mighty fine to us. And they worked hard. And they would sing songs sometimes and play the guitars. They were very good to us. And there was a little old train post about, oh, maybe two miles away, and it had that gasoline pump with the the, the flying horse on the top. And uh, there's a little old man that he showed us movies. We didn't know what movies were. They didn't have no sound. They was the old leftover movies. And so he had a little old rickety table he set up the movie theater on, and he had his cup there, we thought it was coffee, but it was booze. But anyway, he had booze, and he would show us movies, and sometimes the horses would run backwards, and we never figured out how they could run that fast backwards. And so the more he drank, the more he'd lean on the table, and the more he leaned on the table, the more the projector would lean over to producing everybody's watching movies. <laughs> looking sideways <laughs> and uh, sometimes the movies things would break and we'd just get up and ride away because we thought it was over and sometimes we'd get movies that had voices but they didn't go with uh, the mouth they didn't go with the mouth and we f couldn't figure out how they could talk like that <laughs> I was not 10 yet. I wasn't 10 yet. Because when I was 10 years old, the horse fell over backwards on me. 
and I couldn't walk for six months. And uh, the boss said he don't want no crippled Indians there. The doctor said I would never walk again. I don't know if you guys know what a striker frame is, but it's like two big wheels with a board in between. That's what they laid me on. And because I couldn't walk and they couldn't turn me over, they would put a board on top of me and then they would roll the wheels around. It's called a striker frame. That's how they move me around. When they first took me to the hospital, they scared me to death because I couldn't walk, and I never saw a bathtub before. And they put me in a bathtub and turned the water on, and I thought they were trying to drown me. <laughs> I thought they were trying to drown me, and the nuns kept smacking my hands because I was trying to crawl out. <laughs> Then, then I got better, and I got to be in. I got so I could be in a wheelchair, and then I started rolling around in a wheelchair, and I learned how to do wheelies with it. <laughs> I'll always know how to gamble because I gambled with the cowboys, and so I go gamble with the people in the beds, so I could have an extra dessert, <laughs> and and then. Uh, then took my cards away. <laughs> anyway, I made it through that. And the old ones, the old ranch hands that couldn't work anymore, they come and got me and they put me on a bike up in the wire, wires up on, they put wires up in a tree and hooked a bike frame and made me ride that bike. And they looked so, they looked so disappointed if I couldn't do it. So I just kept doing it till I could walk. And then I started walking and then I started racing barefooted, pretty soon I could outrun everybody. Anyway, that's how it was. You're listening to Solidad on Hearing Voices. And then it was time for me to go to high school. So then a rancher had a sister, then her husband, and they had a horse ranch up in Kentucky. And I had to go up to Kentucky. I went up there to work with thoroughbred horses to go to high school. 
But in the meantime, they had to cut out all my teeth because I had malnutrition. And I was poisoned, and they had to cut them out. And I had to go to high school without no teeth. So I don't, I won't listen when anybody cuts school. I won't listen to them talking about how hard school is. I was the only Indian in that school, and them people were there, them kids were off of me. And I didn't know how to handle it because I'd never been treated me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle that. So I just kept my mouth shut, my nose in my books, except when they get up in my face. And then I'd fight back. And I almost got barred from riding on the school bus. <laughs> Anyway, I rode 25 miles on the school bus to go to high school, and I worked in the cafeteria for my lunch. And when I got home, I, worked, I rode 25 miles back, and then I worked till 10.30 at night with them horses. And I don't like thoroughbred horses. They ain't got no sense at all. They will hurt you, even when you're just trying to feed them. Anyway... I made it through that, and I did graduate. I always have had this learning thing. I always wanted to learn. In the meantime, there was a big hassle about a reservation. They moved the reservation once, then they moved it again. This time when they took the reservation, by that time they had Indian lawyers. So that time they said, this time when you take their land, you're going to give them each one X amount of dollars. Everybody got money, but I was 19 at the time, and everybody got money. But when I saw what they were doing, they were like crows on the fence, the white people and the Indians, they don't know nothing. They would just give them whiskey, get them drunk, and they'd, give them, they'd buy anything. They bought electric skills, and they didn't even have electricity. And they would buy a convertible and take it out across the desert and run out of gas and get out and say, give me another one. You know, that's how they did. I saw what they were doing, and I knew even then that if you didn't get an education, you're lost. So I made them take my money and give it for the Mescalero Veterinary Education. And they had lawyers that did it. And we went to the bank to get the money, and they said we couldn't take it out. And I said, I can And we sat on the floor, and the other Indians come in, and everybody sat on the floor, and the lawyers come in, and they said, give them the money. And they did. And we signed it over for the, the lawyers to see that the Indians got education. Now, I don't know what happened after that. And then me and an Indian man got married. We were married six months. When I was 19, we were married six months. And we had motorcycles. We had the two motorcycles. We were going across country looking for a place for us. And we were in, I don't know what town it was or what state. I blocked it all because uh, we went across the railroad track and this tire blew out. And he was killed right there. 
and the people started robbing him. The white people come and started taking his jewelry and stuff, and I went on a warpath and I started breaking their arms and legs because I handled a Harley motorcycle and I was strong and mean and on the warpath. And I was breaking arms and legs. And the cops come, and they could have just knocked me out, but they shot me. They shot me in the groin. And I woke up like, I don't know, I think it was two weeks later. The motorcycles were gone, and my Indian was gone. And then I found out the baby was gone. It got shot away. Anyway, after that, I rode the Greyhound bus for a year and a half because I couldn't stay in one place. I didn't want to be in this world no more. (laughs) I would get on the bus not just point to wherever and just go, and that's in a year when the when you could ride the bus all over the country for sixty nine dollars. I rode that bus, and I would ride it to the town, and I'd find the store and go maybe some pants and a shirt, throw the other ones away, and back on the bus. I never talked to nobody for a year and a half, cause I couldn't stand nobody. Now I know I was close to breaking. Hearing Voices will be back in just a minute. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Welcome back. This is Hearing Voices. This is Solida. I ended up in Florida, and when I first got there, I didn't know anything about the sea. I never even saw the ocean before. And it was on the New River in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in 1968 or 69, I'm not positive. Anyway, I was walking down along the river and I heard this guy growling. He was growling and I said, what's the matter, Tiger? I went over there and he had this big long stick and he was trying to do something with it on a boat and I don't know what it was. But it was a big, long pole. Now I know he was trying to step the mast on a 1929 cat boat, which is a boat from way up north. It's like a big, fat duck in the water. It's real wide, and it's real seaworthy for the heavy seas. And he was redoing it. Well, I didn't know nothing about doing varnish and stuff. Bright work, they call it, bright work. I have a touch for that. And I could just slap it on there, and it looked like brand new. And I had no idea that I knew how to do that. <laughs> and he would work on the boat in the daytime, and in the evening he went to college. And so he said, would you like to learn more about navigation? And I said, sure I would. So I went to college with him, and I learned how to do navigation.
and then I ran into a captain that worked on, he was a magic with wood. He could do the bow stems and the keel and everything. He knew how to bend wood, and they called him Little Iron Man. He wasn't very tall, me and him was about the same height, but he was real strong from handling the wood all the time, and uh, he was a base captain, and he taught me how to steal boats, and he taught me how to do charts and keep logs and stuff. The captain asked me if I'd like to go to deliver boats, and we would fly to Europe and deliver boats back to Florida. And that worked out fine because he... He loved some woman that was married, and I don't want nothing to do with nobody. Because I was froze over after my Indian got killed. I was froze over. Anyway, we did fine. One time when we went to Spain to pick up a boat and we were coming out of the harbor and the pygmy whales were with us, a whole pot of pygmy whales. And then the main halyard on this boat broke and I tried to hold down the the boom and it just picked me up and slammed me across the combing and broke three ribs. Next thing I knew, the captain was trying to get me to drink some soup. I didn't know it, not me. And then he said, we will go to Casablanca because that was the nearest hospital. And we went into Casablanca. They gave me an x-ray, and they taped me up, and the captain tried to pay him, and they said, no, no, Indian princess, no money. And then we went to Canary Islands to stay for 10 days to give my ribs a chance to heal up. And there really is canaries on every balcony, and they're singing all the time. They asked us if we wanted to see a phenomenon. The captain wasn't too sure, but I said, okay. So we went whipping up the mountain. We went up the mountain so far that the car wouldn't go anymore. So we had to get out and walk on up. And there's a house, and a lady came out, and she said, come in here. And we went inside, and there was a, a being, a human being, laying on a little short bed about three foot long, and the thing in it, the body was like about a 10-year-old kid, but the head was like a two-foot diameter, big round, round head. One eye was up on the forehead, one eye was down around the neck, and the ears were not right, and it had this had a hole for uh, like a mouth on the side of its face, and the captain couldn't stand it. He went back outside. This is Soledad telling stories from her book, An Apache Original, The Life and Times of Soledad, on Hearing Voices. Sailing wing and wing is one of my favorite ways to sail. Sailing wing and wing is like you have one sail and then you put another sail up beside it and then you have to have the wind right from the stern and then you can really fly. There's no feeling like it. it you're just going so fast and, and the wind is just picking you up and taking you on. And it's beautiful, and the dolphins, of course, they're right there going, yeah, well, you think that's fast, what's this? <laughs> My people believe that the dolphin is the people of Atlantis. Always when I sailed, 
always. There always was dolphins with us. I don't know why they like me, but they sure do. One time we were coming across, and me and the captain tried to count them, but there was at least 40 of them. And they were just like having so much fun as having a good time. They would swim right by the boat, and I would climb down on the bow chain and try to touch them. And they would just say, they would go right along beside me watching me. And then I would get back up on the boat, and they would just do, doing all kinds of things in the water. They walked on their heads and on their tails, and they did all kinds of flips and stuff all at the same time. And at nighttime, when the phosphorus is in the water, they look like rockets. And the water would still be on them when they jump out of the water. And then they would dive, and they would go clear under the boat and come up on the other side. And it looked like rockets and comets in the water. And then one time we got into 20-foot seas for 10 days. 20-foot seas doesn't mean you go up 20 feet and down 20 feet. It's not like that. You go wee-wan up one side or wee-wan down the other. And if you don't hit it straight on, if you don't hit that way straight on, it could roll you over and dump you. Or if you hit it straight on but you fall off of the curve, you can pull ball and that will sink you. So you're in dangerous waters when they're 20-foot seas. I like it because I have been used to rough, and that's okay. So we had it for 10 days, and then it just went away. Then it was like somebody waxed those, and it was flat, and it looked just like somebody been out there waxing it all night. <laughs> You're listening to Soledad on Hearing Voices. One time when I'm on the helm and I hear this, and I don't know what it is, because I know what water sounds like when it runs down the scuppers, and it hadn't been raining. So then I heard this sound again. We had a string and a bell hooked up, so if you wanted to wake the other one up, you just jiggle the string because there was always only me and the captain on the boats. So I wiggled the string and woke the captain up, and he said, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, but I keep hearing this strange sound, and I don't know where it's coming from. So he goes down below, and he gets a flashlight. He turns the light on and goes, Oh, my God. There's a whale bigger than the boat, and its eyeball is about three inches diameter, and it's looking down in the boat at us. And I thought it was beautiful. It was it had barnacles on it, and it had phosphorus on it, and it was just looking at us. And, and he said, you know, if that thing flips its tail, we're dead. And I said, what a way to go. It smelled bad. Yeah, it smelled like bad fish. And the captain said, be real easy and set the sail. Because, of course, when we sailed, always our batteries always died. We don't know why. But we got used to sailing with no running lights and <laughs> only on sails and stuff. That's fine. So we set the sails real easy. We just kind of drifted off from this whale, and he sounded. He went down below, but he didn't come up under us or nothing. He sounded, but we sailed away, and he didn't bother us anymore. I got tired of sailing because I figured after seven years I was pushing my luck Three boats sank with us. They were supposed to be sea-ready, but they weren't. One of them was a wooden boat that just opened up like a big mouth. The bow of the boat opened up, and the helicopter come and took us off of that one. 
Another one, the cat that was down in the galley on the ship to shore calling for help, and we got it right into port, and I went, blah, 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 <laughs> without doubt. <laughs> but anyway, we never got hurt, but my teddy bear got wet, and it took three days to dry him out. <laughs> but that's okay, because I was tired of sailing anyway. I wanted to go learn something else. And when I got ready to leave, the captain had a, I believe it's a 55 or 57 classic Thunderbird, black. Had 18 coats of black lacquer and had rolling pleated leather interior and that portal thing on the side. And he even had a decal that looked like a bullet hole with a, you know. <laughs> and the captain gave me that Thunderbird when I decided I didn't want to sail anymore. He gave me the Thunderbird, but I have had things given and taken away so much that, that I was shaky about keeping anything, so I didn't drive it for a month. I uh, dusted it off every day with the Kleenexes, but I didn't drive it because I figured he'd come back and take it. But he didn't. He let me keep it. I've always learned a job and then I would get tired of it. I'm real good as long as you don't put a bunch of responsibility on me. But when you do, I'll slip out from under it because I want to go learn something else. I don't want to be boss of anybody. And uh, so then I've learned a lot of different things, how to do a lot of different things. I think that's one of my survival things. That's how I've learned to get along. The first job I had was breaking horses. And then I went to work on a horse farm, feeding horses and cleaning stalls and doing all that kind of stuff. Then I worked on a dairy farm, milking 13 cows every night and morning. And then I got a, let's see, I got jobs in a restaurant. I told you I never saw a grill before. And I told them just, do it how you do it, and I'll catch on. And one time I was offered a job that it was just a new thing that was coming out, and the man wanted me to do chickens in a special way. In this restaurant, he was opening up, and it was going to be special seasoning and special chickens and a special way to cook them. It didn't feel like he was sure what he was talking about, so I turned that job down. <laughs> Can you guess what company it was? Then I was bodyguard for two little girls. I got into cleaning houses, too. I was cleaning houses and doing minor repairs because I lived on a ranch, so I know how to do painting and fixing and minor fixing stuff. So I started doing that, and then this lady wanted somebody to come and be a bodyguard for two little girls because they were called gray babies. That means they were adopted, but not really adopted. I had four places that I cleaned their houses and I never saw the people. All they did was put the money on the counter and make a list of what special things they want done. And I would do it, no, no hassle, you know, nothing. And I did that for three or four months doing that. So I'm driving around and I went to Army Base in uh I went to Newport News State Park in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I got a job at the Army Base at Fort Eustis and I worked in the laundry with a bunch of uh black people 
and they were very nice to me. And one of his, he called me Soul Baby because he couldn't remember my name. And his name was Birdsong. And these people, these ladies said, come on, have some, come and have some. And I said, okay. They had chocolate cake with bologna between the layers. And that's why I learned to eat chocolate cake bologna sandwiches. <laughs> One morning I woke up and there was snow on the ground in Palm Beach County and I said, hell with that. So I took my van and I headed down for Central America and I got down to Corpus Christi, Texas and the van broke down so I sold it to the mechanic and I got on the bus and went on down to Central America. I went on down to uh, Salvador, San Salvador I got a room there, and I went and explored around in Central America. One time I walked along, and I saw this fenced-in castle. And there was a cow out in the courtyard. And so I reached through the fence to pat the cow, and I heard this, and I'm looking all around. I look up on the balcony, and they got guns on me. And I went, well, I don't need to pet the cow. So I walked away. <laughs> I was walking along and there was this crippled up little person was sitting on the ground and they was holding up their hand and I started to give him my change and somebody took over my shirt and they said, no, no, look down the street and I saw a whole bunch of, it was like they were on every other corner. This man told me they were all for one family and these people had these babies and they put them in this stuff to make them grow up crippled. They put them in jars so they couldn't develop right. And they were crippled and they put them out to be beggars because that land is so poor, that's how they were trying to survive. And I started working and uh, plants, learning all about the nursery, and then I went to live in Loxahatchee, and I helped build four houses on that property, and so this guy come and asked me if I wanted to go work on a fishing boat, and I said, sure, why not? I thought it was, you know, like maybe two or three days. <laughs> it was a big uh, 85-foot-something fishing boat that had four electric reels, the cable was big as my little finger. And some of the fish were bigger than me. Big uh, red snappers and all kinds of fish like that. I did that for about three months. But I didn't like smelling them old fish. But I got paid good. You're listening to Solidad on Hearing Voices. In between jobs, I would go dance in the powwows. Dance in the powwows all over the country, in Oregon and Georgia and Arizona, and because that's how I get my spirit back. And I go dance in the powwows, and then I go find another job. And I ain't ever had no trouble finding a job. All you gotta do is look around. Being a courier, I used to be a courier, and I had a little, I made up little red cards that said, Apache Runner, let me make tracks for you. And I would go take people to the airport and pick them up, and I'd go to the lawyers and get the files they need to deliver to somebody else. I would do stuff like that being a courier. And another job I had was for Sir Speedy. Sir Speedy is a place that does uh, business cards and brochures and uh, 
the yellow tablets like for schools. I learned how to bake them. It's called bindery. I learned how to do that stuff. And then in the afternoon, I would deliver all them things I made. And I worked with 35 guys. They never had a lady work for them before, and they didn't even know what to pay me. So I said, I'll work one hour for $2.50. If I ain't worth it, I'm out of here. I worked for two hours, and they gave me a raise, 10 bucks an hour. Then I wasn't allowed to eat with the guys or have a break with the guys. <laughs> it was fine with me. I had to go across the road to the, the marine bathroom, and that was fine, too. And it was like going to school. And I choked one, I cussed one out, and I had one down on the ground choking him, and they decided I was all right. And after that, it was like I had 35 brothers. They had a fit when I left there. One storm we went in, and the captain was up, we was both up, and this time there was lightning all around, and this time a ball of fire hit on the mast, on the masthead, and it just stuck there, and it was vibrating, and it was changing colors from blue to green, or blue to green, and it just stayed there, and the captain said, you know if that comes down, it'll blow all the metal out of this boat, and we will sink. And of course I just said, okay. You know, what else can you say? Okay, it's going to do whatever it's supposed to do. We watched it, I know, at least 10 minutes. And we watched it, and pretty soon it just, it just dissipated. It went away. But that was an awesome thing to see. It was a blue-green that kept changing from light to dark, and, and it, was, it was the same as I seen on the horns in the cattle when I worked on a ranch, and the lightning hit the cattle, and it jumped from one to the other, and their horns lit up with that same kind of thing, and they call that St. Elmo's Fire. You can find links to Soledad's autobiography, her ebook, called An Apache Original, The Life and Times of Soledad, on our website, hearingvoices.com. I think that I have lived many times before, because there's so many things that I've seen that I've already seen. And, uh, I've been in places that I know i already been there before. I think when you die, that your body just stays. Your body ain't nothing. I know people that think that when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. You know, I don't know if you have to wait a long time before you start over, or I don't know if you go from this body into a baby body. I don't know anything about that. But I do know I've died three times, and I never saw no white light, none of that stuff. It was just like, that's it. And you're just like floating away. You just float away. And I don't know where you go. I don't know what happens, and I really don't worry about it at all. I never even think about it. I really don't. I just 
think that I'm going to be happy with what I got. When it's over, it's over, and that's fine. I ain't going to find one thing I already have done. I said, I've already paid for my ashes, and I have. And uh, I have that right to die thing. Uh, They're not allowed to put none of them things on me. And I don't want to be slapped in the face with a shovel. I want to be just float away. They tried to sell me one of these urns and things. I said, no, I don't want none of my friends worrying about what to do with me. I don't care if you sleep me up in a sleeper. It's just a shell. I don't care about that. It's all over. I just don't want my friends concerned about that mess. Because my people just walk up into the rocks and that's it. They just walk up there and quit eating. That's what you do. And time you decide to come back down is too late. <laughs> I'm Larry Massett. I was playing the piano. This is HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.